This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company for The Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Huff across South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, uh, you're concerned about compaction in your crops or perhaps you just want to cut down on your diesel bills. Well, a drone might be the answer. You get really good canopy penetration with them, whereas just from the downdraft of the drone itself, it gets like both sides of the leaf of, of the crop. You're not getting any crop damage from it from wheel tracks running through, and you Another real benefit of it is you're not actually using diesel. <laughs> so it's saving you a lot on fuel costs. I'll have more on that soon. And New Zealand milk giant Fonterra has ordered its Kiwi dairy farmer suppliers to stop disposing of very young calves. So we'll take a look at whether that could flow into Australia as well. I'll have more on that soon. But uh, first up today, uh, you've probably heard about all these fruit fly detections in the Riverland. Well, uh, more than a year after it was announced, South Australian farmers are still waiting for their share of the $30 million of federal funding to manage fruit fly, a package announced by the former coalition government to go towards essential upgrades for state-managed roadblocks and quarantine stations, as well as expanding sterile insect technology and uh, post-treatment infrastructure. It was uh, meant to happen. Nori Watt, the Federal Minister for Agriculture, said his government is supporting South Australia's efforts to eradicate fruit fly outbreaks and uh, that support includes technical advice as well as market access and trade support and will continue to work with the state government in other forms of assistance. Now, yesterday we learned that Australia's cattle herd will reach its largest size in nearly a decade. That's at least according to Meat and Livestock Australia, who expect the numbers to reach about 28.8 million head this year. And uh, it's in no small part to the, the rain and the, the feed that uh, graziers have been able to grow in the last couple of years. Colin Greenfield is the owner of Billicalina Station in Outback South Australia. And he says the growth in the herd isn't a shock to him. It doesn't surprise me with the excellent seasonal conditions for the last couple of years. The herd rebuild was always going to happen. I think the the uh, good prices in the last two years have certainly given the industry a lot of confidence. So, so a lot of cattle that, that may have had their heads chopped off have been retained as breeders and, and yeah, which has then led to an increase in females and um, a bigger calf crop for, for last year and going forward this year. And as you just said, there's been a price increase in the last two years. What increase have you experienced? Oh, last year the prices were as good as we can ever remember, really. Um, feeder cattle, sort of well over seven dollars. Slaughter cattle, up over nine dollars. So yeah, they were they were excellent prices for those who could capitalise on them. Over the last decade, have you to increase the production of cattle on your farm? Uh, we've been up and down. We've we had uh, extremely dry periods four years ago for a couple of years, so our numbers were cut right back. Managed to retain most of our breeders, but we did we had no sales stock, and consequently we bought in quite a few turnover cattle. And and um, with our females, we managed to retain our numbers are back up to to pretty much our maximum now. It said that favourable seasonal conditions and strong prices have underpinned this growth in cattle. Are they the same factors that led you to expand your run also? Yeah, 100%. If the cattle prices were 
were in the doldrums, um, we certainly would have wouldn't have bought any, and um, would have been pretty careful about what cattle we retained. So pricing gave everyone a lot of confidence, and yeah, we've had sort of in the top one or two percent um, seasonal conditions in the last eighty odd years that that we've been here. So those two combined gave us a lot of confidence. How has the increase in input costs played their role in the overall production of your cattle? Yeah, certainly it's no secret diesel prices, cost of of vehicles, motorbikes, freight, have all gone well and truly north. But by the same token, with the increased um, confidence that we've had, we've also put a fair bit back into um, some more infrastructure and fencing and waters. So hopefully that'll that'll help set us up for the next dry time and um, and increased efficiencies. And because of this growth, are things like bulls more expensive to buy because there is that attraction to breeding at the moment? Yeah, for sure. Like uh, it was only a couple of years ago, you could buy a pretty handy herd bull for sort of six or seven thousand. Now that price is up to up to ten for that same sort of bull within within two years. Really, um, there's been quite a large jump in bull prices. So it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of months. There's a lot of sales coming up, whether the levelling off in cattle prices in the last few months impacts those sales or not. And what's your prediction? Do you see this growth continuing? Uh, I think there's still there's still a lot of producers that are low on numbers. So yeah, they'll, they'll continue to increase because there's areas where you have to run cattle, you haven't got an option on anything else and you need turnover. So so they will increase, but then there may be other producers where if, if the cattle price comes off more, look to look at other options where they're able to and um, and disperse their numbers. And in terms of the beef industry's supply chain, where do you see yourself sitting in that? Uh, we've, we sort of target the, um, the organic kill job as well as the ewe feeders and, and um so yeah i think that's just the way we'll continue to go like if the seasons go with us we'll produce more heavy slaughter cattle and if it doesn't then it'll be um back to feeders look i i think there's going to be a good demand for grass-fed quality grass-fed cattle going forward that's a that's an emerging market that seems to be increasing in in the asian regions so yeah, hopefully hopefully there's nothing out of left field that derails that and we can continue to supply that Outback SA's Billy Kalina station owner Colin Greenfield speaking with Dimitri at Panagia Taurus. And you can read more on that story online at abc.net.au slash rural. Or if you'd like to listen back to the chat with Meat and Livestock Australia's senior market analyst, Ripley Atkinson, who had some of the facts around that, you can just search for The Country Out. We podcast the program each day. So if you miss something, you can always go and catch it up. So just wherever you find your podcasts or uh, you can also just search for the SA Country Hour as well. Now, drones are becoming a lot more common in agriculture. They uh, perhaps were a bit of a novelty in some areas, but a farmer in Western Australia's great southern region is using a drone for all his spraying and baiting needs this year. Reese Muir is a mixed farmer and spraying contractor who says his drone has saved him a lot of money on diesel, and he thinks drones should be used a lot more in intensive agriculture, particularly horticulture. You get really good canopy penetration with them, whereas just from the downdraft of the drone itself, it gets like both sides of the leaf of, of the crop. You're not getting any crop damage from it from wheel tracks running through. And you, another real benefit of it is you're not actually using diesel. <laughs> so it's saving you a lot on fuel costs. And it's really uh, quite accurate compared to getting the likes of a plane or a helicopter in. So why did you decide to go down this route? Uh, we went down this road because we have a contract business ourselves. We do a lot of uh, a lot of spreading and a lot of baiting too. So we bought it 
mainly to do baiting with because once we go in crop we were using a buggy or the linkage spreader and we'll just find it really hard we're knocking down too much crop so we bought this to do mouse baits later on in the season but i think we'll use it early in the season as well yeah so we, we pretty well went to it just to just to try and cut back on some fuel costs and and just get the work that we never usually would and has it been effective in comparison to usual ways you would spray and bait yeah yep it's been really effective we're getting a really good spread pattern out of it i wouldn't say it's necessarily quicker but i i, le- I know all the country's been covered and it's been covered well that, that's pretty well yeah <laughs> that side of it <laughs> and what are the main savings you're finding from the drone uh as far as operating it ourselves the fuel cost is a, is a big one product usage everything's going out pretty well dead on we're not getting drift and yeah that's that's pretty well it from from that side of it but as far as uh, what the clients are saving we're doing a lot now for some horticultural clients and they're just saving thousands just not having those wheel tracks run through their uh, through their crops what crops benefit the most from this sort of technology I think your intensive crops like your horticulture, orchards, uh, viticulture are the ones that are really going to benefit from it. There's uses for it in Broadacre and I think that's definitely going to play a part. But uh, we'll, yeah, we'll never, ever compete with the likes of a plane or a helicopter. But these intensive crops, they're, they're really going to see the benefits of this technology. Is this a sort of method that you think you will employ long term? Oh, definitely. I think it's really in the beginning of all this technology, so it's got a long way. It's got a long way to go. It's definitely not there yet, but I think long term, it's it's definitely here to stay. Can they only be used for spraying and baiting? Yeah, pretty well. Spraying, baiting, they can actually they can be used for applying stuff like uh, bentonite in dams. Oh, there's guys over overseas that are using them for actually in in aquaculture too that are using them to spread pellets and feed pellets. Main application spraying, spraying and spreading. Now, you said that you're a contractor yourself. Has there been a bit of an uptake or interest in sharing this product with some of your clients, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's been, it's surprised me how much interest there has there's been with it. A lot of the guys that we have been contracting for are considering going out and purchasing one for themselves. They've either got bone sprays that are, that are nearly... Uh, at the end of their life or they're just looking for something a little bit different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how much, uh, yeah, how much interest they've drawn. Is there a sort of a process at all to be able to use the drone in this way? Yeah, so the main requirements to be able to spray and spread and, and, and do all of that, you really need to get your endorsement 7 uh, equivalent, which is the, the same as the health department qualification. Uh, there's six units that are required for it you also if you're operating under a company you'll need to get your REOC which is your remote basically a company license to be able to use it like that and first of all you really need to get your your remote pilot's license and then go and get your type endorsement for the aircraft is this all a lengthy process uh it took us a good couple months to be able to do it uh there was a trip to sydney that we took to go do some factory training with xag and we also did our type endorsement over there so it it took it would have taken two two maybe three months before we had all the tickets where do you see the future in this space it's going to be huge i i think a lot of this technology will take the place of the likes of it likes of a tractor or, or a boom spray it's gonna it's gonna be big like i said before it's got a long long way to come before it's there but i think uh it's heading in the right direction 
Farmer and spray contractor Rhys Muir, who's based at Maudlup south of Perth, speaking with Sophie Johnson about the future of drones in agriculture. It's coming up to 17 minutes past 12. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. Proudly supported by the Kandinen Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. We've got markets and weather up next, but in the meantime, the River Murray levels, water levels might be slowly dropping but the issues associated with the flooding will continue for years to come. The Riverland and Murraylands Landscape Board wants growers to keep an eye out for weeds that are being spread by this flooding. Murraylands District Manager Casey Henderson explains what to look out for. The main concern is that our priority weed species are going to be relocated downstream. So we'll have infestations pop up where we haven't had them before. Which weeds in particular are you most concerned about? So there's actually a list of priority species. So we have things on the river corridor along the lines of the yellow water lily, um, golden dodder, a puntia species, African box thorns, and even bone seed is a problem along the river corridor. And are you seeing any evidence of these weeds appearing yet? At the moment, it's really too soon to tell. Even though water levels are starting to drop up in the Riverland area, down through the Murraylands, they're still very high. So we're not going to see the true impact until we have a consistent drop in water levels. Are there any areas particularly along the river that you're most concerned about? Is there anywhere where sort of seeds would uh, congregate or something like that? Yeah, again, that's still too um, early to tell because a lot of these seeds will be washed downstream. So it'll depend on how far they've made it down. But it's all going to be determined by what water levels we reached in different areas so the seed will wash into those areas and when the water drops back into the river corridor anywhere the weed seeds have been washed to we could have plants germinating. Are river weed species more of a concern than perhaps the the more land-based weeds that might be transported by the river? No not really we're going to have a consistent issue with aquatic and terrestrial weeds. So what should landholders be doing? So we would really encourage landholders to be out um, looking for emerging weeds on their property by doing regular checks. Um, And when weeds are identified, landholders should develop a plan to control outbreaks and then follow up those control efforts and make sure that they've been successful. How concerned is the Landscape Board about the potential for weeds after this flooding event? Yeah, naturally we're very concerned, but we want to be here and available for landholders if they need some assistance. So what sort of assistance will the Landscape Board be able to offer? So the Landscape Board can help landholders correctly identify weed species and provide details on the best practice control strategies. And there's also some, uh, for priority weed species, some landholders may be eligible to borrow weed control equipment and be provided with herbicides to help manage those weeds themselves. Um, In certain circumstances, 
weed control can be carried out at no cost to the landholder by a contractor or staff member. But that's more determined by those weed species I mentioned earlier. Okay, and how bad they are? Uh, no, not necessarily how bad they are because obviously the sooner we get on to treating them, the better the outcome. It just needs to be one of those species themselves. Have you had much inquiry from landholders about their concerns regarding weeds? No, not yet. Um, we would expect that to come in once the water levels start dropping. At the moment, landholders obviously have other concerns. They certainly do. Are there any that are going to be quite tricky to identify? Yes, these weed species will drift down river with the flows. Some landholders may never have um, encountered some of these species before and they might find them quite difficult to identify. So the district officers are more than happy to help landholders identify them, either through coming out on site or sometimes it's as simple as providing a photo. Casey Henderson, Murraylands District Manager for the Murraylands and Riverland Landscape Board. We'll head across to markets now where Peter Kerr has the latest from Mount Gambier. Good afternoon, Cassie. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 1st of February. Numbers climbed sharply as Asians added 1,044 head of live weight and open auction cattle. A larger field of trade and processor buyers were active over the offering, which was of mixed quality. Pricing improved this week in a dearer market. Feelers lifted 20 to 25 cents of steers made from 398 to 448 cents of trade buyers with similar heifers making from 366 to 425. Feeders operated on steers from 382 to 406 cents and on the heifers from 362 to 382. Yielding steers all went to feed on from 382 to 395 with a lift of 5 cents. Yielding heifers attracted trade interest from 350 to 388. Feeders support here from 353 to 376 cents a kilogram. Grown steers and bullocks made from 320 to 398 cents with a lift of 13 cents. Feeder activity from 360 to 407. Grown heifers returned from 266 to 384 cents to the trade, with feeders operating from 320 to 375, as manufacturing steers made from 279 to 318 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows rose 8 cents to range from 260 to 310. Lighter lots making from 218 to 265 as bulls range from 230 to 280 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. And John Traeger has the Dublin results. Good afternoon. Quality was again fair to good as Aidens offered 6,500 lambs and 1,500 sheep. Competition was erratic from the outset, and while a full field of buyers were active, returns were mixed. Light and store lambs sold easier as the best of the heavyweight lambs sold equal to the previous sale. A good selection of mutton sold firm for type and condition. Extremely light lambs sold from 70 to 125, with light lambs ranging from 120 to 140. Medium weight lambs sold to 174, as heavyweights range from 188 to 200, with the extreme heavyweights selling from 226 to a top of $255 per head. Hoggets sold from 92 to 140, with medium weight mutton selling from 58 to 75, and heavyweights 92 to $104 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, quality was again extremely mixed, as agents offered 130 live weight and open auction cattle. Competition was generally good, with feeders more active on suitable cattle. Yearling steers sold to 450 cents, as yearling heifers ranged from 332 to 402 cents. 
Grown steers range from 306 to 396, with grown heifers selling from 292 to 358 cents, reflecting the wide variation in type and condition on offer. Cows of mostly heavier weights sold from 286 to 300 cents, and young bulls sold from 140 to a top of 342 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks for that, John Traeger there. Now to weather. Vince Rollins, a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, has the latest. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. This is a bit of cloud cover around. What's happening? Yeah, there is. We've got that little uh, trough moving across the south of the state or is continuing to move, and that's uh, pushing a little bit of cloud up over the, uh, mainly over the southern agricultural areas, so around the, the coastal fringes. But uh, it has produced a little bit of rainfall this morning, so up until 9am, we uh, generally had up to a couple of millimetres over the far south of Air Peninsula and uh, a little bit just pushing over the Mount Gambier region. But, uh, yeah, a little bit around. Mainly, um, I think the highest falls up until 9am was 3.8 millimetres at Neptune Island and 2.6 at Pandana on the on Kangaroo Island. And, and since then, that, the showers have just pushed a little bit further north. So uh, Para was had 5 millimetres at the southern tip of uh Fleuro Peninsula and uh, yeah, around the sort of Port Lincoln Cummins area, we've had up to a, a millimetre. So it's not uh, not a really significant rainfall, but a little bit uh, around the area, and expecting that to just continue to push a little bit further north before easing and and uh, probably clearing up a little bit later this afternoon. But as we head into tomorrow, we are looking at a more vigorous frontal feature moving across the south of the state. So that will uh, push showers uh, a bit further north, just across the, the southern agricultural area, getting into the south of the, the northern agricultural area. So we're expecting a bit more around tomorrow, particularly about the Mount Lofty Ranges and southeast could see some falls up to about 10 millimetres or so through those regions and a, a little bit over Air Peninsula as well. But uh, yeah, it's just helping to, to keep these southerlies going, producing uh, yeah cooler conditions right across the state. So we are seeing temperatures well below average today and that will continue through tomorrow into Friday where we'll see the coolest day and temperatures around that sort of 10 to 15 degrees below average. So yeah, much very much unseasonal conditions for this time of year but uh, as we head into uh, the weekend and, and early next week we see the the effects of the trough clearing south winds going a bit more southeasterly and eventually in western parts going east to northeasterly so that's going to help drive temperatures up so we will see temperatures over northern parts of the state early next week getting into the around the sort of 40 low 40s again and uh, elsewhere across the state getting more towards average temperatures. So, yeah, <clears throat> if you're not uh, that keen on the cool weather at this time of year, Cassie is certainly going to uh, get a little bit warmer as we head into next week. But um, before we get there, as I mentioned, we've got those showers around um, today and then more likely about uh, the southern agricultural area tomorrow. We do see... Uh, as I said, the wind's picking up quite a bit, so there is the potential for some pretty decent gusts uh, coming through, particularly over the Mount Lofties and southeast districts tomorrow and uh, again on Friday with those winds. And there's a bit of a risk of some thunderstorm activity over the southeast on Friday as well, which looks like it's going to be quite gusty. So we will be monitoring 
that situation pretty closely over the next uh, couple of days just to, to issue any warnings as need be, but certainly some uh, pretty decent winds over the coast, so we do have coastal wind warnings out for the next couple of days. But rainfall totals, we've seen a little bit, as I've mentioned today. Uh, generally, for the next couple of days, we're looking at uh, around sort of 2 to 10 millimetres about parts of the southern agricultural area and uh, just extending up into the southern parts of the Flinders as well. And uh, around the, the southeast district, we could get uh, some individual, well, some ISO totals up to about 20 millimetres. So, yeah, some nice little follow-up rainfall for this time of year, but obviously not extending that far north, Cassie. No, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. It is rather cool for this time of year. Thanks so much for that update, Vince Rollins. Thank you. In the far west of New South Wales, there is going to be sunny weather in the upper western. A bit of wind around, though, in the early afternoon. Overnight temperatures falling to between 16 and 20 degrees. But the daytime temperatures will reach 19 to sorry 29 to 36. The lower western will be sunny. Again, getting rather windy, 25 to 40 k an hour winds in the early afternoon in the lower western. Overnight, the temperature will get down to 12 to 15 degrees. But the daytime temperatures reaching the mid to high 20s. I've got more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, so glad you could join me. Today, Fonterra has ordered New Zealand dairy farmers or their dairy farmer suppliers to stop disposing of very young calves. Now, that isn't mandated in Australia, but could it be just a matter of time? What we're trying to do is to go, yes, we're less than 5% euthanasia, let's get it even less. Let's, let's really show that the industry takes it seriously and, is, uh, and wants to do something about it. You'll hear from the Australian Dairy Farmers Association on what they are doing in this space. And uh, I know back in uh, was it late December, maybe early January, there was a record broken for the largest elephant garlic grown in Australia, in Tasmania, I believe. Well, South Australia has gone one better. Looks like the uh, record is now in this state. I'll tell you more about that soon. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the police commissioner has described a recent spate of drivers being caught travelling at extreme speeds as horrifically dangerous. A 38-year-old man from Modbury Heights has been accused of travelling at 196 kilometres an hour near Bordertown, and a 20-year-old Smithfield man was caught driving at 253 kilometres an hour on the north-south motorway at Waterloo Corner. Meanwhile, the Commissioner says he understands community concerns around surveillance technology such as facial recognition. Last night, police are called to the Salisbury Council meeting to keep an eye on protesters who are concerned about the Council adopting such technology. Mr Stevens says if it is adopted, it will need strong governance arrangements in terms of how footage will be used. And green methanol used to supply the shipping and aviation industries with zero emission fuel will be produced in Port Augusta. The renewable energy company Vast Solar has been selected to receive almost $40 million from the Australian and German governments to develop what's being called the world's first green methanol demonstration plant. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks for that, Matt. Now, the Animal Welfare Act is being reviewed in South Australia and the RSPCA is calling for urgent action to include the currently overlooked marine life in the Act. Currently, fish, cephalopods and crustaceans are not included in the Act. Animal Welfare Advocate for the RSPCA in South Australia, Dr Rebecca Eyes, says an update is needed to bring South Australia in line with other states. The RSPCA believes that fish crustaceans and cephalopods should all be protected uniformly right across Australia under animal welfare law. The science has found they are sentient, they are deserving of our legal protection and they should be protected uniformly regardless of their different uses and their different locations. And we think this is one of the most urgent changes that is needed. South Australia really needs to catch up with some of the other states that already have these reforms. Um, So that's New South Wales, Victoria, the Northern Territory and the ACT. All of those states recognise some fish, some cephalopods and some crust stations under their Animal Welfare Act and give them some protection. So you just want to see South Australia at least make some step forward in this area? There is a community expectation that the Animal Welfare Regulator will have the power to respond and investigate if there is an allegation of cruelty for fish, for cephalopods and for crustaceans. Other states have it, we don't. The benefits of including fish, cephalopods and crustaceans in South Australia's Animal Welfare Act are many. Most important benefit is that we would be meeting the public expectation. The community do expect that these species will have some animal welfare protection. But it will also increase the state's capacity to respond to cruelty allegations that involve all of these fish, cephalopods and crustaceans. It will also more accurately reflect the scientific evidence. And what would you say to those who might be concerned that any change in the laws around this issue might impact the way that they fish or change how they might go about it in a negative way? There is actually no significant evidence in the states that have already introduced the reform, New South Wales, Victoria, the Northern Territory and the ACT. There is no significant evidence that these have negatively impacted their fishing industries whatsoever. Dr Rebecca Ayers from RSPCA South Australia. What could changes in the Act mean for fishermen in South Australia? Many professionals already follow industry best practice when it comes to how they handle their seafood, but changes could help guide amateur fishers to improve their practices. Executive Officer of the South Australian Northern Zone Rock Lobster Fishermen's Association, Kyriakos Tomazos, said he would welcome a review into potentially adding lobsters and other sea life into the Act. We always support reviews of uh, best practices and uh, in the rock lobster area we have been basically working on this for probably three decades now and uh, the practices that we follow have been clearly designed by experts in, in order to make sure that the animal husbandry that we use in holding live lobster of excellent quality. That's an area that we have been working collaboratively with with the different scientific organisations to make sure that we have world's best practice. And what are some of those practices? Basically, we make sure that our water quality is exceptional. We make sure that we have uh, extremely healthy holding tanks. We have extremely 
extremely you know robust monitoring programs to make sure that the water uh, levels as far as uh, pH, acidity or anything else that we need to be aware of is of excellent standards. So we make sure that we look after rock lobster in the best possible way we can. Right. So for you and others in the industry, maybe a change in these laws would be more just bringing the laws up to speed with what industry is already doing. Would you say that's correct? I would say that the industry has already been uh, extremely proactive in this space for, as I said, we've been doing this for nearly four decades now. So, uh, yeah, it's more about, I think, you, you know, with what's going to eventuate is going to be basically the laws will basically adapt to the world's best practice that the industry is already using. From what you've observed from recreational fishermen when it comes to, to craze and lobster, are there any concerns there? Would you like to maybe see them improve their practices a little bit? I think that uh, all recreational fishers should be uh, looking at what the commercial sector is doing and uh, we're happy to uh, to be part of the education journey. So, yeah, I think that the recreational fishers, as long as they adapt practices that are followed by the commercial sector, will have no problems with uh, maintaining the best animal husbandry we can. Kiriakos Tomazos from the South Australian Northern Zone Rock Lobster Fishermen's Association speaking with Elsie Adamo there. And uh, that uh, review of the um, animal welfare laws is underway at the moment. So if you are interested in having your say on that, the uh, consultation is open until the 26th of March this year. So um, if that's something you feel strongly about, then uh, have your say. Staying with this theme of animal welfare, New Zealand milk giant Fonterra has ordered its Kiwi dairy farmer suppliers to stop disposing of very young calves after the co-op changed its supplier contracts. From June, Fonterra's New Zealand suppliers will be banned from euthanizing bobby calves on farm, which are animals under the age of 30 days, and instead raise them to an older age or send them to an abattoir. And while the Australian arm of Fonterra says there are no plans to mandate similar requirements at this time, it's raised questions about whether the local industry is doing enough to changes to meet its consumer expectations and uh, I'd be interested to know if uh, after listening to this story and some of the things that uh, the Australian dairy industry is doing uh, whether you agree you can text 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222891 the uh, dairy farmers Australia sorry Australian dairy farmers president Rick Gladigo says while he's confident Australian based processes won't follow suit uh, the industry is being proactive. So someone like myself here in Adelaide Hills, while there is a calf truck, um, the closest abattoir is down at Warrnambool, uh, and I just personally can't put my calves on a truck ride to go that far. Just I did it years ago, I don't do it anymore, so I just rear mine out. So there is that opportunity, but not for everybody, um, to rear calves uh, longer than that. People also got to have the facilities to be able to do it. Running more calves is the risk of more diseases getting into your calves. Um, and then if you're rearing them out, you've also got to have the land available to you're going to rear them out to um, usually freezing or dairy are generally 18 months, two years old before um, they'll go back in the chain again. So it's probably proved a little bit at the moment given a bit of scarcity of, of beef cattle. But, but as an industry here, I mean, we've just... ADF last year put together an ADF bobby calf 
Task Force, which was a whole of industry approach to this issue and to gather information from around the country, and this is including processors and uh, those along the chain, right, you know, growers of who buy calves and rear them out, etc., right through to farmers. And but what comes out of this is is sort of certainly been how proactive the industry's been in trying to minimise the number of of bull calves that are born on on farm, and that's through. You know, people are now doing far more sex semen as such, mating their better cows to, to sex semen. Um, they've, they've used the export, dairy heifer export then uh, for surplus ones. And there's more people who are um, also say the bottom end of their herd who go, well, I don't really want to breed from them. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll use beef semen over them instead. And so they, they run dairy crosses instead to rear out. So the ADF... You want to end on-farm euthanasia of viable calves and you have a target that by 2035 that will happen. However, this decision by Fonterra is showing, because of pressure from consumers and animal welfare groups, that they may be forced, because of that pressure, into to doing an action like this. Is the industry in Australia ready for it? Um, with what our recommendation is, is try to... Uh, decrease the number of amount of euthanasia on farm, but but our stats even on euthanasia on farm, it, it's it's even less than five percent of calves are actually euthanized on farm. So, so the rest go to like, market, do they? Yeah. Mm. So so you know it is, it's a very small percentage of of the number. So we've sort of said twenty thirty five a minute. It's some people say that's a long way away. Others say it's it's uh, still too close. So it's about us saying, okay, we've got to make, we've got to develop viable markets with industry with, uh, as well, you know, as in meatworks, the processing side, etc., to be able to go to farmers. Okay, if you're going to rear your calves, uh, and we want you to rear your calves, then that you've actually got a viable market to actually do that extra work to do it. Because nobody's going to do anything for nothing. You know, there's value opportunities there. We've just got to actually work to make sure that we can create that right along the chain. The process is actually have developed markets for those bobby calves that they do slaughter. They're, you know, they're used in health and pharmaceuticals and all those sort of things as well. And it's not like they're just dipped in the bin or something like that. But what we're trying to do is to go, yes, we're less than 5% euthanasia. Let's give it even less. Let's let's really show that the industry takes it seriously and, is, uh, and wants to do something about it. It's like there's not a one, one thing fix all for the whole industry because whether you're in far north Queensland or or uh, South East Tasmania, or South West Tasmania, not every area has a, has a meatworks to get rid of, you know, to send bobby calves to that's, that's viable to do that. You know, what are the other initiatives around there to be able to, to handle them? And what is the industry doing about that? So that's why we've had the bobby calf task force to go, OK, what is the issue around the country with calves? What are, what are states currently doing with calves? Um... Uh, you know, and what is available in those regions. So, you know, our recommendations is that we can that all all our dairy calves can enter a valued a valued market chain, and that we also then go right. We need responsible breeding and rearing strategies as well to uh, for successful dairy and meat production. And we also um, need to have the marketing on the consumer side, but it also that gets into breeding, say, dairy bulls that are possibly more meat style or whatever. It's changing consumer, consumer etc. as well as to there's nothing wrong with eating a dairy animal. Um, 
you know, not everything has to be beef. I think there's also export opportunities for this, with especially into Southeast Asia, of that style of, you know, they like that more marbled meat, which is what you generally get out of a dairy animal. So you know, let's, let's develop those markets. The task force sounds like you are trying to address those issues, but could it be too little too late if Australian dairy companies take a similar stance to Fonterra's operation in New Zealand? Uh, no, our strategy and, and, you know, we had processes as part of the, as a milk process part of So the, you're confident they won't do that immediately? I don't, I don't think they will. We as an industry want to work as an industry um, and that's why we've, we've sort of done this task force already. Let's get on the front foot. As an industry, we're already proactive. So instead of just going, well, dump something on you and now you've got to deal with it, it's far easier for us to go, let's work together and create viable options than to bring in a, in a rule. And, uh, and usually industry is pretty good at doing that, of, of working together. One of the reasons that the um, number of cars that, that are still being killed, the number of bobby cars still being killed is has gone down, it's about 300,000 now, is because of the increased beef price and some of those other things yeah. you talked about. But what happens if the beef price takes a dive? Do you think that'll go up again? I'm hoping it doesn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm t- basically considering the world needs food and the world needs protein. So, um, and that's why we're saying we've got to develop viable markets so that uh, if there's fluctuations, we've got, you know, whether it be an overseas market, etc., that that we can handle these as well. There's risks in everything, so that's why we've got to develop markets. You know, we we don't go back to seeing an increase in euthanasia on farm. That's what we're trying to get away from. Australian Dairy Farmers President Rick Gladigo speaking with Emma Field. And a 2022 survey by Dairy Australia found that only 1% of healthy dairy calves were euthanised at birth on farms. That's down from 2% in the previous survey. However, 4% of bobby calves were either stillborn, died at birth or were euthanised because of illness. So uh, the numbers are relatively low for the industry. The number of calves sent to processing between the age of 5 and 30 days was about 16% of the total herd in 20. 22. So uh, there is uh, work happening, but as you heard, uh, New Zealand is uh, mandating things uh, a little faster. On the the animal rights for sea life uh, story, Rosie from Marion has texted to say cephalopods are highly intelligent, sentient beings, and definitely need protection. Thanks so much for your text, Rosie. It's 14 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Many Australian grape growers are feeling the effects of China's tariffs with less demand for grapes, particularly red grapes. But they're not actually alone. Global wine production was down slightly on the 10-year average last year. But this downward pressure on consumption means that the wine market is still oversupplied, according to Wine Australia's Global Wine Report. There's still more wine out there than people want to drink. Market Insights Senior Analyst at Wine Australia, Sandy Hathaway, says many countries are struggling with oversupply, not just Australia. While we tend to think we've got a bit of an oversupply here, Globally, Australia accounts for just 5% of production, so it's pretty small in the scheme of things. And even though we had you know, a record crop in 2021 and then a much smaller one in 2022, we actually still stayed at around 5% and we still maintained our position as the fifth largest producer. But you know, Italy, France and Spain between them account for pretty much half of global production, so it's what happens there that counts. And what we saw in 2022 was that those three countries, they saw a return to 
slightly above average production after having had quite a poor vintage the year before. And then conversely, the Southern Hemisphere producers, of which we're the largest, we saw a kind of return down to average after having had record crops in 2021. So it's your classic swings and roundabouts. So, you know, it sort of sounds like, well, no news. It's another year of an average production. But this is actually quite a good thing, really, because, um, you know, if we'd had this sort of really big global harvest, that would be adding extra pressure to supply in Australia because on the global market you'd be seeing also, you know, an oversupply. So the different hemispheres are largely offsetting each other. Looking at the breakdown between white and red grapes, Australia really lent into the red grapes with the demand coming from China, but that has now put pressure on the, the red grapes in Australia because there isn't the demand or the availability of the Chinese market that there was. This looks like it's being played out across the world, though, as well, and lots of these countries aren't affected by the, the tariffs that Australia is into China. So what's driving this, this lack of demand for red grapes? We've seen an increase in our supply of reds, as you said, sort of lent into it as demand increased. And, and it was largely driven by China. But, yeah, the same was happening in France. They also were experiencing big extra demand from China. So what's then happened is, particularly with Australia's red mine supply that was going to China now having no home at all, um, and overall China kind of has dropped by about 300 million litres in a couple of years. So they've taken a lot off the market. It's not like they just said, oh, well, we won't get Australian red wine anymore. We'll get it from somewhere else. They pretty much stopped buying or greatly reduced what they were buying or importing probably mainly to do with COVID, but, you know, other factors as well, like an increased demand for their local wine. So, you know, essentially that put pressure on red supply around the globe. Um, And the other thing to note is that it looks like it's this dramatic increase in red supply and nothing in white. And that's partly because the white harvests around the world, ironically, just when they were needed, they were down. So particularly New Zealand in 2021 had a very, very small harvest. And their Sauvignon Blanc is so popular that, you know, that created this global demand and global short supply of Sauvignon Blanc. And South Africa and Australia also, you know, didn't have enough. Um, So it's sort of, by contrast, it makes the red oversupply look worse. But then in 2022, we've seen, particularly in South Africa and New Zealand, you know, white supplies return to a more normal level. So we, we don't expect, it's not like we're sort of actually short of white wine vineyards, if you see what I mean. How does supply, therefore, compare to demand? We know in Australia that there's a, a glut at the moment. How's supply playing out globally, though? Definitely wouldn't use the word glut, but it does seem as though we have more wine than we have obvious um, markets for it at the moment. It's reasonable to say that when you look at supply for the last 10 years and consumption also collected by the OIV, there's been this big gap and it's, you know, it's something like 3 billion litres, which is more than double what Australia normally makes in a year. So, so what we're saying is that globally we're making more wine than anyone wants to drink um, and that's before these sort of recent disruptions. So, you know, kind of since COVID, we're not even really sure what normal is anymore. We obviously had 
and I'm talking globally, we had COVID and then we've got this sort of, well, COVID's gone, but now we might or might not have recessions and, you know, we're really not sure what business as usual is going to look like. Um, so we've got these sort of short-term consumer disruptions overlaid on a long-term decline in demand, as I was saying before. Um, there's this sort of long-term trend away from drinking wine, particularly among younger consumers. So, so those factors are sort of continuing to drive demand down. Um, production is also coming down slightly. So there's just this sort of consistent gap every year, um, which means that, you know, at an overall level, it's just hard to sell wine because you're always selling it into a market that's got more wine than it actually wants. Some thoughts from Market Insights Senior Analyst at Wine Australia and Sandy Hathaway there and uh, we'll have more on the upcoming harvest of uh, grapevines in this state in the uh, coming weeks as the, the harvest is not too far away. Finally today though, a hobby farmer from Coffin Bay on the Eyre Peninsula is now the official record holder for the largest elephant garlic grown in Australia. Now you may or may not know this, but elephant garlic is not actually classified as garlic. It's more closely related to leeks. John Thompson knew he was onto something big, though, when he harvested this year's crop and found some monster bulbs. Brooke Nindorf spoke with Mr Thompson about his record backyard crop. So originally I, I went and harvested some a wild patch of garlic in near Mini Ribby. And then successively over the seasons, I've split it up and selected the biggest each year to grow. And each year they've just got bigger and bigger. And each year I've selected the top 20%, the biggest 20% to plant again. And each year I've gotten bigger and bigger. And we're finally starting to hit Australian record sizes. It was a difference between that giant garlic, the elephant garlic, and and maybe the the normal garlic that everyone might know about. Um, It's actually a type of leek. And it's a little bit more mild tasting than normal garlic, uh, but it stores much better than normal garlic. It's a lot more sticky uh, and just a bit more of a mild flavour. And you said they're about breaking records. Tell us about what you've just done recently. Uh, So I've grown the biggest elephant garlic in Australia. It was 1,092 grams. The previous record was 827. And so how far off is that the world record? Uh, About 100 grams off. Yeah, uh, so next year hopefully hopefully we'll have a crack at the world record. What did you have to do to get the Australian record, apart uh, from grow it? <laughs> uh, I had to get it certified through Australian Giant Pumpkins and Veg Supporters Group. Um, so I had to go down to my post office and get it signed by a JP and certified. And show a, a weight that it, that it was? How did you have to do that? Uh, so I had to go on some official scales and that was part of the post office. Their, their scales are officiated. Um, there was a heap of criteria, so I had to chop the stem within two inches of the cloves. Uh, roots had to be no more than six millimetres long, and there was some other criteria as well. Was it uh, an easy process? Not really. It was It was a bit daunting mentally going in, thinking, oh, you know, if I do something wrong, maybe I can't qualify or, yeah, because I knew I had a record and I really wanted to make it count. <laughs> and so, obviously, only 100 grams off the world record. Is that what you're aiming for now? Yeah, definitely. Uh, next year, I feel like I've got a fair chance. Do you think people will be coming for your record now? Yeah, definitely. 
And so is there a way that you can, you know, what, what are you trying to do next year to maybe try and beat your your own Australian record but maybe aim for that one, that world record? Well, every year I've, I've gotten bigger and bigger since I've been growing it. So I'm going to stick with what I've been doing and just selectively selectively plant the biggest ones and give them plenty of room and plenty of love throughout the growing season. Coppin Bay hobby farmer John Thompson. John's record was officially recorded by the Australian Giant Pumpkin and Vegetable Supporters Group. AGPVS is the certifying body that recognises and keeps track of Australian vegetable and fruit records, which includes weight, length, circumference and produce per plant. And while carrots and pumpkins are popular record holders, elephant garlic is not huge in the Australian record books. In fact, John's elephant garlic has set the record for others to beat, as Paul Latham from the AGPVS explains. Well, I'll tell you the truth, that's the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so how has he beaten the, the previous one? Uh, well, there was one um, previously not here in Australia, so um, so he's, he's actually beaten and made a new record at the same time. He's very lucky. I mean, what we uh, hope for is to have a... Um, Let's put it this way. There's not every vegetable grown has got a record attached to it. So he's come across with this elephant garlic, which is actually quite an impressive thing. And he has now established a record for the garlic here in Australia, which is uh, fabulous. With a a super, uh, super sized uh, garlic at that, you could have a a record for a a pea or something like that, something minuscule, but of merit that we, we find uh, worthwhile. So he has got the Australian record, though. It is oh, official? Yes, he's definitely got the Australian record official, yes. yes. Do you think now that the, the first one then has been put forward that more people might come forward with elephant garlic? Is it a very popular uh, vegetable? No, it's not a popular vegetable at all. <laughs> no, it's the first time um, anyone sort of suggested it, in, in a sense. There's lots of things that are... Um, how can I put it... Um, like pumpkins are amazing, for for an instance. I and mean, they're pretty popular. People eat pumpkins and all that sort of stuff. Now, elephant garlic, I don't even know if you can eat this thing properly. I mean, I'm sure it's edible, but I don't know uh, what it tastes like or anything like that. It's just this amazing world of vegetables out there. Anything that's out of the ordinary, you know, it, all of these weird and wonderful things that we uh, figure that uh, it needs a record. Uh, if it's the first one or if if someone overseas has already grown one, we'll compare it to the way it's been weighed and measured over there. Well, you might see some more uh, elephant garlic coming through with this uh, this new new record, uh, broken and, and also set uh, over the next couple of years, Paul. Oh, look, that'll be fabulous. You know, uh, I, look, I'm all for competition, that's for sure. <laughs> it's great fun. We uh, Like, I, I've got the uh, record for the tallest sunflower in Australia. Uh, it's not a world record, but it's the tallest sunflower in Australia. But I've been hoping that someone will break it because then I might even give it another shot to break it again. Still something to be proud of. That was Paul Latham from the Australian Giant Pumpkin and Vegetable Supporters Group speaking with Brooke Nindorf there. John set the record, so it's something to chase down now if you're a keen garlic grower, particularly elephant garlic. I mean, it's in the name there that it's going to be big if it's an elephant garlic. And there is more online about the record-breaking elephant garlic at abc.net.au slash rural. Do check that out. There's more to come, though, on your ABC local radio this afternoon with Sonia Feld. Off, but that's all for me. It is coming up to one o'clock. 
Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.